Uh, this morning, uh, we continue in our series in the book of Acts, and we're looking at the book of Acts because over the past few years, our confidence in the church has been shaken in a number of ways. We've witnessed scandals of church leaders. Uh, during the pandemic, we got out of the habit of these formative rhythms of what it means to be the people of God. Um, during the pandemic, we had lots of time to think about things that maybe we would have never thought about before. And we've asked these big theological questions. And at the end of it all, we're kind of left with this notion of thinking, is the church really worth it? Is the church really necessary for faith? And as we've walked through the book of Acts, we've rediscovered the identity and the purpose of the church. We've seen that we're not alone in our contemporary situation. Ours is not unique. The early church dealt with all of these same realities. Scandal and moral issues amongst leaders. Shifts in habits between Judaism and Christianity. Deep theological questions. What is God all about? And yet these early Christians found the church life-giving. And they found being together as the people of God central to faith. And so as we turn into Acts chapter 20 this morning, we continue this story of the early church, which is our story. And you might have noticed that we did not read the first 16 verses. Most of these verses are descriptions of Paul's travels, which you can see visually on this map behind me. And beginning in Ephesus, where we left Paul last week, in chapter 20, in these first 16 verses, Paul travels counterclockwise back to Corinth and then clockwise, eventually arriving at the city of Troas. And the most interesting story from these first 16 verses is Paul's visit to this town of Troas, where he was preaching a sermon late into the night. And we might not can quite imagine this, but the church was gathered together in a big house, and Paul was preaching a sermon that went on four, five, six hours, kind of a very long teaching, and it was so long, there was a young boy there named Eutyches, and he was sitting in a window seal, it's a multi-storied house, and he's listening, and Paul is going on and on and on, and Eutyches falls asleep, and he falls out the window. And he either dies or he's seriously injured. And Paul has to run downstairs. And because he's an apostle of Jesus with this apostolic power, he heals or even maybe resurrects this young boy. So I'm going to skip these first 16 verses because I don't want you to fall asleep and somehow injure yourself this morning. And also because I don't have apostolic powers for healing. What I'd like to do is to focus on verse 17 through 37 that Matthew just read. And in these verses, we have Paul's final words to the elders of the church in Ephesus. Most of us in some way have experienced last words that have made a permanent impression in our life. And it might be even random. It might be something that, you know, your music teacher told you 
in third grade, or it might be something that a mentor or maybe even a coach said to you on that last game in high school. We remember these last words. I remember when my dad used to drop me off at school. His last words to me were, be a scholar and a gentleman today. I don't know quite what that means. I think it was a part of a mission statement of a school that he taught at. So I think he thought it would be good just to say those, those final words, be a scholar and a gentleman today. Also remember the night that my dad passed into glory. And I was there as he was breathing his final breaths. And when I recognized what was happening in that moment, I bent down and I whispered words, final words of love into his ear. This week I celebrated my oldest daughter's graduation and we heard a lot of stereotypical kind of trite words at her graduation ceremony. And then we're able to go to dinner and celebrate really special words given to her over our family celebration. Words matter. And last words really matter. And in our passage this morning, Paul is saying goodbye to leaders in the church that he spent three years of his life living with, ministering with. And it's not that Paul has some foreboding sense of death. Although, as we'll see, he does sense that trouble is ahead. And these last words have surely been carefully chosen by Paul as he gives them to these leaders in the church. So I want to look at at these three last words that he gives these elders. And then I want to look how these words come together to make one singular point that will impact our life this week. So let me pray and ask Jesus to go before us. Oh, Jesus, we do pray that you would go before us. We thank you for your words that will never end, that forever give us life all the way into eternity. So, Lord, I pray that we would be caught up in your word this morning and carried along in your eternal spirit. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Amen. Well, Paul's first word amongst amongst these final words to these elders was become a captive of God's spirit become a captive of God's spirit Paul has asked the elders of the church in Ephesus to meet him in the city of Miletus which is actually 35 miles south of Ephesus you can see this on this map he's traveled from Ephesus south to the city of Miletus why was he doing that Well, you might remember the last time that Paul was in Ephesus, we saw this last week, a a huge riot uh, broke out in the city, uh, of which Paul was at the center of this riot. And so maybe Paul is, is fearing that he has something meaningful to say to these elders and he doesn't want anything else to get in the way. But in verse 18 through 20 of Acts chapter 20, he summarizes his experience in that way. He says that his time in Ephesus was marked by service, sacrifice, hardship, endurance. He's saying it was difficult, but it was incredibly rewarding. And yet he goes on to say that where he's headed, it's just more of the same. And we see this in this first last word in verse 22 through 24. And now, as a captive to the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. 
except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that the imprisonment and, per, that the imprisonment and persecutions are waiting for me. But I do not count my life of any value to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the good news of God's grace. So Paul's sensing some trouble is ahead. But to give you a little bit of context of what he's saying there, you go back to Acts chapter 11. And there an early Christian named Agabus prophesied that a famine would strike the entire Roman world. And for some reason, this famine seems to have particularly impacted Jerusalem in an acute way. So Paul has been building the church all throughout the Mediterranean region, primarily planting Gentile, uh, Gentile-centered churches. And so over the past few years, as Paul has been visiting these churches, he's been building this capital campaign. He's been putting together this offering, this, this free will offering from the Gentile churches to take care of their sisters and their brothers in Jerusalem who are suffering severely. It's almost like the story of Joseph where Joseph was able to prophesy that a famine was going to strike the ancient Near East and he began to make a kind of a divine inspired protection for all the people around him. So this is why Paul is on his way to Jerusalem and a part of what he means by finishing the course, finishing this mission to bring this offering. And what we see here is that Paul has come to live a very others-centered life. To give his life away even if it meant his own personal suffering at his own personal cost. But Paul's life, as we know, wasn't always this way. Earlier in Acts, Paul was a man consumed with himself in pursuit of what he could achieve, knowledge that he could acquire, a stature that he could build, and he was willing to do whatever it takes to get there. But here in Acts chapter 20, we find a very different sort of person. We find a man consumed with Christ. Being found in Christ, he discovered a new existence. One of self-giving, of suffering, of counting the cost. He expects all of this to continue. And yet, his new life is marked by joy, peace, confidence. A controlling force outside of him has come and taken over. And yet, this force is life-giving. He feels it at the core of his being. And because he does, he's able to pour his life out for others. That same kind of shift can be seen in the faith journey of David Brooks. Most of you know that name. A columnist for the New York Times. And he writes about his own faith journey from cultural Judaism to committed Christianity in his book, The Second Mountain. The Quest for the Moral Life. And one journalist doing a book review of that uh, biography summarizes Brooks's story this way. He says, Brooks argues that life on the first mountain, the mountain of personal goals, worldly success, career ambitions, and traveling in the right social circles is transitory and ultimately unsatisfying. Eventually, though, if you're fortunate, you find yourself on the second mountain 
one characterized by other-centeredness and self-giving. Often, though, not always, the path to the second mountain is marked by hardships and failures. I believe this metaphor of two mountains is not only true for David Brooks and for Paul, but for each and every one of us. This transition, this movement between these two mountains, it's, it's difficult for us to ascertain. It's difficult for us to embrace. We fight with all of our strength to try to make, and make life our captive. But it always turns out illusory. Notice the content in the parentheses. Often the path to the second mountain is marked by hardship and failure. And so what you find when you follow Jesus is that he will lead you to crucify the passions and the desires that you think are leading to life, but yet in reality are putting you in prison. And after putting those things in you to death, he raises you to a new life. The sort of life that you never thought possible. A life where you actually just kind of forget about yourself. How is that possible? It's this first word of Paul. It's what it means to be a captive of God's Holy Spirit. You're just carried along. The second word, obtained with the blood of his own son. Obtained with the blood of his own son. In verse 26 through 27, Paul signals a transfer of responsibility. Paul has been like a father figure to these leaders in the church and really the whole of the church. But now he's handing over the reins, passing the baton, so to speak. It's time for these leaders to grow up. And so he issues a charge for the elders to keep watch over themselves and over all the flock. It's interesting that he says both of those things. He's not just telling the elders to go and to do the work of ministry, but to also keep watch over their own heart their own relationship with God, their own abiding with Christ. Paul says that it was the Holy Spirit that has made you overseers, shepherds of the church. He's speaking there to, to their ordination as elders. And why have they become leaders? Not for themselves, but because God has obtained the church with the blood of his own son. Sounds kind of grisly to our modern ears. The blood of of his own son. And yet this gets at the heart of the city of Ephesus. And I mean that actually literally. Last week I noted that the biggest attraction in Ephesus was the temple of Artemis, which of course was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And Artemis amongst the Greco-Roman pantheon was known to be a nourishing sort of life, a mother earth, if you will. And throughout the year, people would come to Ephesus. They would come to the temple of Artemis. And they would bring sacrifices. And they would make offerings, hoping for divine help with their career or with a pregnancy or with next year's crop. Meanwhile, on the other side of the city, for centuries, Jews had been making sacrifices in a similar way. Primarily at the temple in Jerusalem sacrifices to Yahweh. There's a difference, though. 
the rituals of this temple were only a faithful preparation for the Messiah who was to come. But it's interesting to see the common denominator. Religions in both cultures were familiar with temples, with sacrifices, with divine beings who became or acted like humans. Yet both cultures were always left with this haunting feeling of uncertainty. Is my God, whoever that might be, is he or she really going to show up? For the Greeks, they wondered if they had done enough to earn the favor of Artemis. For the Jews, they wondered when Messiah would come and bring the world to rights. And so this is why Jesus was such good news to both Jews and Gentiles. It's why he made such perfect sense to both cultures. They expected someone like him. The difference, though, is he paid the price. He was the sacrifice. Jesus made sense and provided the certainty they were looking for. And this is why Jesus is such good news for us today. As Matt prayed just a moment ago, we live in a world of uncertainty and there are gods at every turn and corner making us promises of certainty. But the gods of the world overpromise and underdeliver. It's only in Jesus that we find evidence of the only God in all of human history. Amidst the backdrop of all world religions, the only God who sacrificed himself to give us the certainty of his love. And the pleasure of looking to Jesus is that no matter how much we doubt God's love, or think that we're unworthy or undeserving of God's love. We need only to look to Jesus, as we sang earlier, to be 100% certain that it's real and it's true for you and for me. Paul says, you have been obtained, not by a sacrifice you have brought. You have been obtained by the blood of his own Son, it's true. The third final word that Paul speaks to the elders of Ephesus. I commend you to God and to the message of his grace. I commend you to God and to the message of his grace. Paul notes that there will be savage wolves that will not spare the flock. They'll be savage. They'll tear the, the people of God apart because they distort the truth. We see Paul here like a parent anxiously waiting for their child to come home at curfew at night, wondering, hoping, praying that their son or their daughter is okay. Paul's concerned about wolves outside the church. We saw an example of this last week with Demetrius the silversmith, who really worshipped uh, the, the goddess Artemis and, and really worshipped his own, uh, his own career, the money that he was making, and he saw Jesus was being disruptive to a whole industry of tourism in the city of Ephesus. We also saw wolves inside the church that Paul speaks to here. These itinerant Jewish exorcists who were roving about the synagogues and the churches. And here in Acts, in Acts 19, they used the name of Jesus for their own power. 
Paul says there will come uh, along those even within the confines of the church who would distort the truth and entice disciples to follow. So the question becomes, how do we recognize false teaching in our midst, whether that's coming from outside or from the inside? And Paul would tell us it's a matter of motive. It's a matter of motive. Uniquely among all of his writings, Paul uses an analogy of a shepherd to a sheep, which was an ancient and wisdom analogy, especially for the Jewish audience. It harkens to mind Jesus' words in John chapter 10, where there he uses that analogy to describe his own ministry. And he says that a good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, whereas the hired hand sees the wolf coming and runs away. And then Jesus concludes, reflecting on his own heart, I lay down my life for the sheep. It's a difference of motive. True shepherds don't need to use people to gain power. True shepherds don't need you to stroke their ego. True shepherds don't need you to find to help them find security in their position. They don't have anything in their life left to prove or defend. Why? Because they have been commended to God. They have been commended to God. And this word in the Greek, commends, means to set before. They live grounded, rooted, anchored in the very Godhead itself. And his divine effort, which is what we mean by grace, not our effort, but his effort, his grace, his divine effort is what builds us up and provides the security that each and every one of us as human beings needs. And if we have this divine gracious effort, what more do we need in life? We dwell secure. And living his life before God, Paul didn't need to manipulate people. He didn't need to manipulate situations. He could simply be a faithful shepherd because Christ was faithful to him. And I love how one scholar put it. If greed is seen as a sign and acts of one's spiritual poverty, then Paul's attitude here is seen as a sign of his largeness of soul. I love that. Paul is saying, what you've seen in me, I hope the same is true for you through the work of God's grace, a largeness of soul. So if we bring these three strands together, we have a strong rope. Paul's final words to these elders in Ephesus were, be held captive by God's spirit. Second, you have been obtained by the blood of God's own son. Third, I commend you to God and to the message of his grace. When you bring all those things together, the reason why it's a strong rope is it points to one singular point, a life surrendered to God. An acknowledgement that our life doesn't really belong to us. But we discover what it means to truly be human when we surrender the wholeness, the fullness of our life to Christ. In our culture, there is nothing more powerful than the cult of self. It's almost as if like an invisible temple to the self sits at the epicenter of our city. The question is, 
how is that working out? How does self-actualization actually work out in real life? You know, when we come to face difficulty, when we worship the self, then all of a sudden we feel despondent, we feel guilty, we feel shame, we feel like we're not enough because of what we did do or what we failed to do. When we live in that, that cult of self, even when we become successful, even when we do something virtuous, we wake up the next day and we wonder, was it enough? And then we think to ourselves, it wasn't enough. We just, we need to be on to the next thing to prove our existence. And so living for the self results in a life of disillusionment and disappointment. Ernest Hemingway said this so well in his novel, A Farewell to Arms. Maybe you read that in high school. In a sense, it's a story of final words. Set during World War I, the book tells the story of an American ambulance driver named Frederick Henry who serves in the Italian army. During his time in Italy, he meets a nurse named Catherine while receiving treatment for a leg injury. Pretty quickly, a romance develops between Henry and Catherine. They find solace in one another's arms amidst a world of chaos. And the more Henry falls in love with Catherine, the more disillusioned he becomes with the war. Eventually, Henry goes to the front lines and he's wounded there. Catherine also becomes pregnant with a child. They begin to hatch an escape plan to get to Switzerland, but before they can get there, Catherine goes into labor and dies during childbirth. The novel ends with Henry in a state of disillusion. And for the reader, Hemingway leaves us with the question, is there more? Is there more to this life beyond just our own experience? And that's a fascinating way of explaining how the gospel reaches our soul. During seminary, I was trying to complete a, a master's of divinity. I was working uh, at, our, at our regional sales agency uh, for the company that I worked for. Uh, we began to have children. We had our two first daughters, Ellie being the oldest, and then Grayson during seminary. Uh, it, was a, it was a difficult and stressful time. I'd often go to class in the morning, and then I would drive across town to the office in the afternoon, and I have a memory on a number of occasions that other guys, my classmates, as we were finishing up class for the morning, they began discussing plans of having lunch together and then playing basketball. And I remember thinking, man, I got to go to work. And, uh, and I, I used to feel sorry for myself. I have to get in the car and go do this. I wanted to be with, with them. And then something interesting happened over time. Each day, God put me to death, little by little. Each day, I lost a little more of my conception of life. Each day, I didn't get my way. And over time, I discovered, after a matter of years, a new joy. The joy of what it meant to be a man taking care of his family and following God with his life. 
Psychologists would call that maturity. The Bible calls it life in the kingdom of God. I want to challenge you this morning. If you're fighting to get your way in life, stop it. Stop. It's destroying you. I can't say that strongly enough. God is wanting to give you so much more. And I say all of this lovely, lovingly because what might be happening in your life is that bit by bit, God's spirit is putting your desires and your passions to death through the ordinary circumstances of life. And he's joining your bodily life to the body of Christ Jesus on the cross. And he's putting that old stuff to death. That on the other side, you might experience the power of his resurrection. That same spirit that resurrected him. Grace, joy, peace, stability, satisfaction, transcendent meaning and purpose. All of those things await if only you will yield yourself. This is life with God. And so Jesus tells his disciples, if anyone wants to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their crosses and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Let me pray. Almighty God, whose most dear Son went up not to joy, but first he suffered pain and entered into glory before he was crucified. Entered not into glory before he was crucified. Mercifully grant that we, walking in the way of the cross, may find it none other than the way of life and peace. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen.